So it was on the evening of November the 10th, back in 2017, that Kate McClure ran out of gas off of I-95 in Philadelphia. Without money on hand and being in the car alone, she didn't know what to do. And so fortunately, there was a homeless man around the area. He was a veteran. His name's Johnny Bobbitt Jr. He saw her and he came to her aid. He told her to stay in the car and lock her doors. So then Johnny walked to the nearest gas station with what little money he had left. He bought a gas can, filled it up, walked back to Kate and filled up her uh, car with enough gas so that she could safely get home. Now, obviously, she's just moved by the kindness, not only of a stranger, but of a, a homeless man who took his last $20 to help get her home safely. And so um, Kate and her boyfriend set up a GoFundMe campaign to try to uh, pay it forward and help this man out. And so uh, they set up this website. They retold the story. They took a nice picture of, what, uh, of him um, and, and asked people to contribute in, in, in the same kind of way, in a sacrificial way that Johnny had done for her to pay for the kindness that he showed with his selfless act of kindness. Now, this campaign went viral. Over 14,000 people made donations to this GoFundMe page, and within a short period of time, they raised over $400,000. Now, if the story sounds too good to be true, that's because, unfortunately, it was. The entire campaign was predicated on a lie. Less than an hour after the GoFundMe page went live, Kate was texting with a friend and told her, that the story was fake. Now, just a pro tip, if you're going to con people, don't text people about it, right? That's your first mistake. But she texted a friend and said this, okay, so the gas part is completely made up, but the guy isn't. I had to make something up to make people feel bad, right? She knows that the story was integral to people giving the money. McClure didn't run out of gas, and Bobby didn't spend his last dollar to help her in need. Rather, they met outside of a casino a month earlier, conspired together to pass off this story with a feel-good story that would compel others to contribute to their cause. And what's more, all of the money, the $400,000 they, uh, they, they made, was squandered very quickly on gambling, drugs, and other frivolous per, uh, purchases. And for their crimes right now, they're facing jail time and hefty fines. Now, GoFundMe refunded everybody their money. They had to eat that loss. And many people were moved by the story simply because of the sacrificial love. But at the end of the day, it was simply too good to be true. Now, it's that attitude that it was simply too good to be true is how many people view the resurrection of Jesus Christ it's a moving story. When you read about it, you can't help but go, man, if that really did happen, someone laid down their life, how beautiful it is. But it's a moving story and nothing more. I mean, can't we just get rid of that part? I mean, we have his teaching. We have his example. That, isn't that the stuff that really matters? Why do Christians insist that Jesus rose again on the third day? Well, today as we continue in our series, we believe we're looking at the Apostles' Creed and we come to that line in the text, on the third day, he rose again. Now, Christianity makes a very bold claim that after being crucified on a Roman cross, on the third day, Jesus rose again. It is the hinge that the door of Christianity swings on. 
And while the story might sound too good to be true, I would suggest to you this morning that the story is simply too good not to be true. This morning, we're going to consider some of the doubts to the resurrection and how the resurrection holds up to our scrutiny and investigation. Then we're going to move into to, uh, to a period of discerning and looking at why it really matters, what is significant, what is important, um, why is it so integral to the claims of Christianity. And finally, we'll look at what happens when we become a people who depend on the resurrection. So we'll look at the doubts to the resurrection, we'll discern the resurrection, and, look, and lastly, we'll look at what it means to depend on it. Look with me at Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17. We'll have the words on the screen. You're also welcome to use the Bibles underneath the seats. Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, this is after the resurrection. Jesus is with his disciples. You have to realize Christianity makes, I get it, some bold claims. And at the center of all of those bold claims is that Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. Now, for many, that claim is simply unbelievable. And what I want you to see, and why we're pointing to these verses, is that it was unbelievable even for the disciples. These are people who saw him the Bible says, raised from the dead. And it's written by those very people, right? It was unbelievable even to them, and they had seen them. After Jesus rose from the dead, spent some time with his disciples, even among that core group, there was a mix of faith and doubt, worship and uncertainty. See, we often think, if I could have just been there and seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have any doubts. I would have certainty. But what this passage tells us is that belief doesn't really work like that. It's, a, it's more than just a matter of the eyes. Belief is a matter of both the mind, the eyes, and the heart. But it also tells us something profound too. It tells us that doubts don't disqualify us from being disciples. It doesn't say they doubted and then Jesus said, well, you're out of here. You're no longer, no longer my disciples. See, Jesus can handle our doubts, because it's not the perfection of our faith that makes us disciples. Rather, it's this. It's the perfection of our Savior that makes us disciples. Here's the place now where you're going to have to examine your heart and ask, what is the difference between a faith that's seeking understanding versus an unbelief that's seeking validation? See, faith that seeks understanding says this. I want to believe I have doubts, but I'm trying to work through those doubts towards my belief. Unbelief seeking validation says this, I don't want to believe, and so I'm looking for any reason not to. I don't know if you read much social psychology, but if you do, one thing you'll find is that they confirm that we're wired in such a way to look for confirmation bias. Now, here's what that means. We accept evidence we find that supports our predisposed ideas, and we reject evidence that stands contrary to what we believe is true. So none of us are coming at it as an objective um, bystander, weighing the evidence in a truly objective way. If you already don't want it to be true, you're going to bypass the evidence that um, is contrary to your position, and you're going to hold on to the evidence that supports your already predetermined idea. Jonathan Haidt, 
who is a social psychologist at NYU. He's not a Christian. He's got no skin in the game. This is what he says in his book. If our emotions are like an elephant, reason is a rider perched on top. So imagine in your mind someone riding on top of an elephant, okay? Most of our decisions are gut reactions, our intuition um, as strong and unwieldy as an elephant. Our reasoning comes later to justify our decisions. Only through hard work can the rider get the elephant to switch directions, right? Who's more powerful, the elephant or the rider? The elephant, right? So what happens is the elephant turns and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I wanted to go right. See how that works? The, the rider starts to alter their decisions based on what the elephant is doing. That's our gut internal um, a predisposition. So we have to actually, if we want to really be objective, we have to come and understand that this morning. What this means is as we look through some of the various doubts to the resurrection, hear me, if you already don't want it to be true, you'll be prone to dismiss everything I'm about to tell you. You're not gonna wrestle with it. You're not even gonna reason through the actual arguments. But through hard work, we can overcome that confirmation bias. But it will take hard work. If you're here and you doubt the resurrection, let me say this. I'm so thankful that you're here. We're gonna look and dive into some of the, the doubts. And I, let me say this. Anything worth believing Anything worth building your life upon is worth questioning. It's too important not to, not to question it, just to take it on face value. But at the same time, resist the urge to let your doubts become uh, uh, to settled unbelief and cynicism. You gotta wrestle through your doubts to find the answers. I like what Jonathan, book, uh, Jonathan Dotson in his book Raised says. He says, question your faith and Question your doubts. Determine good reasons for believing or not believing in the resurrection. If he really did defeat death, it changes everything. Doubt well, and you can walk away from skepticism, cynicism, or blind faith, and you can walk into intellectual security, perceptive belief, and deeper commitment. That's the goal this morning, that all of us will walk out more firm in what we really believe to be true. So let's quickly look at some of the gospel accounts in scripture that testify to Jesus' resurrection to see what happened. Now, by way of reminder, remember, it's late Thursday night. Jesus is arrested, and after a very quick and sloppy trial, lots of beatings, he's crucified on a cross on Friday morning. The Bible tells us around 3 p.m. he died. He was quickly buried in a rich man's tomb uh, before sundown when the Jewish Sabbath began. It's very important to get them off the cross so they could celebrate um, the Sabbath. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that on the third day, this would be Sunday morning at dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Luke's gospel tells us that in hand, they have burial spices so that they can properly finish the rushed burial job that happened on Friday. See, they didn't get to take all the time and consideration that they would normally have taken to properly um, bury a body. Okay? In the ancient world, just everyone was kind of their own mortician. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Now, they go back to the tomb to finish the job. And when they arrive, they see the guards are passed out on the ground. And there was an angel who had rolled away the stone. Now, noticing their expression of fear, this is what the angel said to her. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here 
for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Notice, the angel anticipates their doubts and unbelief and says, come and see that the tomb is empty. Then go tell the other disciples that he's risen from the dead, and then you'll see him. So after a quick look to see that he wasn't there, they left with a mixture of fear and great joy to go tell the other disciples. Now think about them for a minute. One minute, they're there ready to um, prepare this body. They're ready to see the bloody dead body of Jesus and give him a proper burial. And the next minute, they're told by an angel that he's alive. Luke's gospel tells us that they had started to remember Jesus's words that he had predicted his death and resurrection. See, as they're headed to Jerusalem, Jesus starts telling them, listen, when we get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. He predicted it, right? He told them what was gonna happen, but they didn't wanna believe that it was true, and so they had kind of dismissed it. They didn't understand it then, but now it's all starting to come together. Have you ever had those moments where you have all this information before and at the time it doesn't seem relevant, but then maybe a year later or two years later, whatever it is, uh, pieces start to fit together and the fog goes away. Or maybe it's um, from studying a new subject matter at the beginning. It's kind of foggy. It's unclear. But with some time, the fog lifts and you can see with clarity. That's what's going on here. Some of the things they had heard before that didn't make any sense now are starting to make sense. And here's what's remarkable. These women are entrusted with this very important task to go and tell. They are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, you have to realize women in this culture are disregarded on every single level. Did you know they were not allowed to give testimony in court? Their testimony was inadmissible outright simply because they were women. They were women. They they were not credible witnesses. One ancient writer named Celsius, Celsus, who lived about 80 years after Jesus, dismissed Christianity. And he said, you know why I dismissed Christianity? Because the eyewitnesses were women. So how could it possibly be true? You can't trust them. This is one of the realities. That guy would not make it in this culture, right? (laughs) This is one of the realities that Christian scholars point to to show the truthfulness of these accounts. If you were making this up, if you were fabricating a story, you would never have women be the people who are your primary eyewitnesses, not in a million years, because they know they're going to be dismissed outright. Anyone who read it would have dismissed the case right away. Why did they write it this way? Because that's how it happened, and they were trying to report exactly what happened. Now, Matthew's uh, gospel tells us that the, the women go to tell the other disciples. But on the way there, they meet with Jesus, and they worshiped him, and their hope became sight. Look at this interaction. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of him and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they'll see me there. Everything about the way this is written is making sure you don't miss the reality of the evidence. The tomb was empty. They saw him. They touched him. They talked to him. 
Luke 24, 11 tells us that when the women arrived where the other disciples were, that they started to tell them. And, and Luke's gospel tells us the disciples dismissed them. Again, they have that same culture. They're going, oh, look, at the, the women are just in hysteria. We can't trust what they're saying. Luke 24, 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, Peter, Luke tells us, heard the news, ran out to the tomb to see for himself, and found not only that the stone was rolled away, but that Jesus was gone, and the linen burial clothes were by themselves. See, Luke makes it a point to tell there's nothing in the tomb except the wrapping material that was around him. Luke tells us in, in, in stark detail that Jesus then came to where the disciples were. Look at this account, Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they had seen a spirit. See, that's their first inclination. Oh, we're seeing a ghost, we're seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. He invited them to touch and feel his wounds. Jesus also dispels any rumors that they might have that he's kind of spiritually risen from the dead or that they've had a hallucination. He says, listen, I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. And just to make sure they understood his point, I imagine Jesus seeing a piece of fish back there like, hey, you got anything to eat? Right? I'm gonna show you, I am really here. I'm here, give me a piece of fish. In a moment, everything changed. Their despair changed to hope. Disappointment changed to motivation. Death changed to life. What you need to know is prior to this moment, resurrection was just as inconceivable to them as it is to you and me. Again, I mentioned earlier I'm a big nerd. You probably haven't studied ancient cultural beliefs about the resurrection, but I have, so I'll, I'll save you the time. No one is expecting it. Even though Jesus told them multiple times that he was going to die and that he would rise again from the dead, they simply dismissed it. No one is there on the third day. That's evidence in and of itself. Had they believed in resurrection, you, you would think someone's like, hey, shouldn't we go check it out? Remember Jesus was saying all that stuff? Let's just show up and see what's going on. No one's there. On Sunday, all the disciples are hiding. The females are going there with what? Burial spices. Why? They expect to find a dead body. Their purpose is to embalm the body, not meet their risen savior. We often think ancient people are gullible and stupid, but they're not. Resurrection was just as hard a pill to swallow for them as it is today. So if you were a Greek at the time, the idea of an embodied life after death, which is what resurrection is, not only was impossible, it wasn't even desirable. In their philosophy, what they're trying to do is they, they know the soul is trapped inside this evil body. If you read ancient Greeks, their whole, their, the point of religion is to, to free the soul from the body. The Greek uh, uh, playwright, uh, uh, 
a cyclist, said this, Once a man has died, the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. That's what the Greeks believed. And they wouldn't want to believe it. They would go, why would, when the soul has been set free, why would you want to imprison it once again? Now, for the Jews at the time, some outright rejected the resurrection, and some believed in a future resurrection at the end of time that involved all the followers of Yahweh. So for them, the Jews, again, half the crew dismissed a resurrection outright. But for the group that did believe in the resurrection, they believed that it would be a corporate, massive thing. It wouldn't be um, uh, hidden. It wouldn't be something that you would miss. It would be a lot of people coming together who believed in, um, in Yahweh re- uh, resurrecting together. They didn't have a category for an individual resurrection, let alone that the Messiah would be one who was raised. So why am I saying all this? It was just as unbelievable to them as it is today. And second, when they saw Jesus, everything changed. And very quickly, a movement of Christianity exploded onto the scene. And within a few months, thousands upon thousands of people were committed followers of Christ with a faith that was anchored to this central claim of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historical scholar N.T. Wright says, it takes decades, if not a century, for this kind of theological change to happen within a religion. But this happened overnight, and it didn't stop. Christianity, even in the face of widespread state-sanctioned persecution, by AD 350, so this is about 300 years later, numbered 34 million people. The book of Acts tells us on, at the moment of Christ's resurrection, there was about 120 Christ followers. In 300 years, it, it numbered 34 million, not because it was popular, not because it was easy, but if you were a Christian, it cost you everything. 34 million people was half the Roman population, the Roman Empire population. From a historical perspective, what could have caused such a radical sudden and dramatic shift in beliefs that spread like wildfire. Everyone in this room has to answer that question. That's not debated. No one goes, well, I don't think it really spread. No, no, everyone knows it spread, everybody. The question is, what caused it? Something caused it. What would account for such a dramatic change? Here's what Christians say. Given the evidence, Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the only reasonable explanation that makes sense of what happened historically after the death of Jesus. So here's some uh, other people who, who, who don't believe that. Here's how they've tried to answer the question. The first is called the delusion theory. These titles are my titles. You may not find them out in the literature. Here's the delusion theory. This theory suggests that the grief of the disciples was so intense that they were simply delusional. Perhaps in the wake of it all, they hallucinated, and then the rumor mill started, right? The problem with this theory is that there were many eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Hallucinations don't work like that among many people at various times in various places. This is not Woodstock, Coachella, Burning Man, okay? This is not what's going on. Luke 24, it's amazing how many names they list. Luke 24 says, Cleopas and his friend walked and talked with Jesus. 
Peter and the other disciples all had an interaction with him. Thomas says, I won't believe till I stick my fingers in the scars. And Jesus says, here we go, do it. The women at the tomb touch and worship at the feet of Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All of this is being written with specific names. It's like an ancient footnote. Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, Go talk to these people. I'm giving you their names. They're still alive. You can go and figure out if I'm telling you the truth. Not to mention, as the news about Jesus's death starts to spread, all the Roman and Jewish authorities had to do was produce a body. If they come out and say, here's your Jesus. He's dead. Here he is. Look at him. Everyone goes home and Christianity is dead on arrival. But they can't produce a body. Why not? Because the tomb was empty and no one has ever been able to produce the body of Christ. Because right now, the resurrected Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, the second theory I call the conspiracy theory. Some argue, look, the disciples, uh, uh, you know, as nice as they are, uh, conspired together um, to create Christianity. The basic idea is the disciples contrived the whole thing so they could start their own movement. Now, the problem with this theory is that the whole point of a conspiracy or a con job is it's supposed to benefit you, right? That's the whole point of it. But the simple reality is the early church didn't stand to gain anything. In fact, they lost everything financially, politically, and socially. They were persecuted for their faith. And the leaders, the so-called conspirators, all died gruesome deaths under torture that would have stopped if they just said, we made it up. We made it up, right? Why would they risk their life for a lie? Matthew 28, 11 through 15 tells us that the only cover-up going on was between the chief priests, the elders, and the Roman guards. Look at this. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, this is the Roman guard, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. They told them about the angel, told them about the, how the, the tomb was empty. And when the chief priests had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole away the body while we were asleep. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. When Jesus rose from the dead, it presented a massive problem for the Jewish authorities who wanted to maintain power and control. It also posed a massive problem for the Roman guards. They're supposed to be watching the tomb to make sure nothing like this happened. So the chief priest paid them off not to tell anyone what really happened, and they fabricated a story that the disciples had stolen the body. And then they promised, listen, if the governor finds out, we'll smooth everything over with him and there won't be any issues. They had everything to lose if Jesus rose from the dead. And now they conspired to discredit the resurrection. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Peter says we didn't devise, we didn't conspire, we were just simply eyewitnesses to his majesty, which was confirmed by the resurrection. See, the power of life over death was something they couldn't keep to themselves, so they told people. Now, here's the third theory. It's called the false hope theory. This one says, look, I get it. The apostles, the early Christ followers, they died for their faith because they had too much invested in it. History tells us that for sure, the apostles, Peter, Paul, and James, the disciple, James the disciple and Jesus' brother James, were martyred for their faith. No one, no one uh, argues on that. And the Bible says that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But just because they're willing to die for their faith doesn't make it true. So you might be thinking that, right? Just because someone dies for their faith doesn't make what they're dying for true, right? And I would agree with you on that. People die for lies and untrue things all the time. So what separates these early disciples dying for their faith from a terrorist who dies for the cause they believe in, like on 9-11, or this one we just had um, in New Zealand? Their willingness to die for anybody shows the depth of the sincerity of their faith. We can all agree on that. But it doesn't show the truthfulness of their faith. It shows that they were committed to die. But here's what separates the early disciples from others. When a terrorist dies today for their faith, they're doing so generations removed from the actual events, right? Even today, if a Christian dies for their faith, they're doing so based on the testimony of multiple generations, right? You following me? They aren't in a position to know for themselves whether or not the claims are true or false. But the apostles, they, are, they aren't receiving their faith from somebody else. They were eyewitnesses. So that puts them in a position to know if what they're dying for is true or false. That's a massive distinction. They were in a position to know if it really happened or not. The apostles didn't die for their faith simply because they believed that even if Jesus died and stayed dead, that eventually, 2,000 years later, this would be a nice moral paradigm to follow. They had no concept of what was going to happen. They died for their faith because it was true. Paul says it bluntly. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul knows if the resurrection isn't true, this thing is a sham. It's not worth anything. This is the man that said, if Christ is not raised, the bottom falls out of our faith. It's powerless, it's useless, and it's futile. And Paul is one of those eyewitnesses who died for his faith. See, he's telling you what he believes about it. None of these theories hold up. None of them adequately explain what caused the biggest movement in history. Everyone knows something incredible happened 2,000 years ago, something that changed the world. Either the biggest movement in history maliciously spread like cancer on a fabricated lie that people knowingly died for, or the God of the universe really did come down, enter into humanity, take on our sin, die in our place, and rose from the grave. Both of them sound ludicrous, and yet somehow one of those stories is true. And what you believe about that changes everything. Now, I know we spent a lot of time. This sermon is front-loaded with looking at the doubts because if you, if you can't get past those, nothing I say really matters. 
Hopefully, something I've said has caused you to go, well, let me dig a little deeper. So let's do that together and see why the resurrection matters. As we discern the significance of the resurrection, we're looking at why it matters and why it's central and foundational to Christianity and why we can't just leave it out. The Lexham Theological Survey defines the resurrection of Christ like this. These are some helpful sentences. The resurrection of Jesus is that central moment in human history that serves as the foundational doctrine of Christianity. After having truly assumed human nature and submitted to an agonizing and shameful public death, the eternal Son of God was truly raised from the dead in his glorified physical body, no longer subject to death and decay. Look at this last sentence. His resurrection validates his identity as the divine Son of God, demonstrates his irrevocable victory over death and the grave, and secures both the present salvation and future physical resurrection of believers. Okay, you don't have to write all that down. I'm about to explain all that. So let's see first how the resurrection validates his identity as the Son of God. Romans 1.4 says this, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Simply put, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, he wouldn't be the son of God who's worthy of our worship. See, throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, he made bold claims that he was the son of God. He said things like this, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father because I and the Father are one. He did things that only God can do. He, he would forgive people of their sins and he told dead people that they couldn't be dead anymore and he raised them from the dead. And on multiple occasions, Jesus made the claim that he would die and rise from the grave. Look at one of those claims he made. Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus is speaking. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus leaves no wiggle room here, does he? Not only does he explain how he's going to die, but he also explains that he's going to raise from the dead in three days. Had he stayed dead, not only would that claim be false, but everything else he said would lose credibility. And that includes his claims to be the divine son of God. Historian Alistair McGrath says this, the resurrection declares that Jesus who died on the cross is none other than the son of God. Jesus is not merely another human being suffering unjust and cruel execution at the hands of an oppressive government. He is the son of God suffering pain and rejection for us. See, on the cross, Jesus is executed and tried as a criminal. In the grave, he is the defeated would-be Messiah. But the empty tomb vindicates him as the divine son of God and the savior of the world. The resurrection marks his transition from humiliation on the cross to exaltation. But not only does the resurrection validate his identity as the son of God, it also demonstrates his victory over death and the grave. Look at 1 Corinthians. And if Paul, or Paul's writing this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Paul makes a careful, logical argument on the implications if Christ is not raised. 
Follow it with me. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our faith, our beliefs, they're all futile. It's meaningless. And if it's meaningless, we're still in our sins, which means the curse of sin. What's the curse of sin? Death, right? We looked at this last week. The curse of sin is death is still on us. If you're still in your sins, death is coming for you. Remember, death is the result of sin. It's what we receive and deserve because of our sins. Then why, That's why Paul says, if Christ didn't rise and defeat death, then all those who've died are still going to stay in the grave and they will not cross over from death to life. If Christ is not raised, they're dead. End of story. And then he says, if all that's true and all we have to look forward to is this life only, when it's over... Then, we're, then we have no hope anymore. We should be a people who uh, not are persecuted, but are pitied. If that's true, there's no hope for escaping death. And life is ultimately meaningless. Whatever meaning you create in this life, in a couple generations, it's going to be over, right? The generations that follow you, how, how long will it take before our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids forget we ever existed, Right? If Christ is not raised, then death has won, and life is meaningless. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now Paul follows the counter argument. So if Christ has been raised, he is the first fruits. Now, none of us are probably farmers in the room. First fruits is an agricultural term. It refers to that first sample of the harvest that lets you know the nature and the quality of what's to come, right? You have a crop, you take some of your best samples and go, this is an indication of what I have to offer. Christ is, Christ's resurrection is a foretaste of what's to come. So then Paul says, in the same way that Adam's sin resulted in the curse of death, the resurrection of Christ resulted in the defeat of death and the reinstitution of life for everyone who is in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus not only shows that he defeated the grave, but it shows that all of us in Christ have victory over the grave as well. So what's the conclusion? Christ has been raised, therefore death has been defeated and now life has meaning. Because Jesus is the divine son of God, the grave couldn't hold him. And death would not have the final say. Now, the third reason why the resurrection is significant is because it secures our present salvation and our future resurrection of our own selves. Look at Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To be saved in a Christian sense means that you've been delivered from all of the impact and the effects of sin 
and death so that you can enjoy relationship with God and truly live. Paul's explaining why our union with Christ, uh, how it impacts our salvation. He says, for those who are united to Christ, joined to him, belonging to him, our old self, our sin, was crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, our sin died. I know we talked about this at length, but let me say it again. When Jesus went to the cross, he had no sin of his own to die for. He took on our sin so that when our sin was placed on him, it died with him. And when that happened, our enslavement to sin ended. Jesus died and rose again, and so now we're set free from sin. That's what salvation means. It means that the penalty our sin deserves was paid for by the death of Jesus. And the power that sin has over us as a slave master has been broken by the resurrection. And there's coming a day when the very presence of sin is removed when all of us are gloriously resurrected like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on what it looks like for us to be physically resurrected. We've got a whole sermon on that in a a few weeks. But remember, Christ's resurrection is a foretaste of yours and mine resurrection. See, for the Christian, our hope is not in being set free from the body. Our hope is in the renewal and the restoration of our bodies to live forever in the presence of God. Bodies that don't decay, that don't wear out, that don't suffer. Salvation means we've been saved from the penalty of sin. And if you're in Christ right now, look at me. You are being saved from the very uh, power of sin. And one day, the very presence of sin will be removed. Without the resurrection, the death of Christ would have been meaningless. He wouldn't even have made it into the history books. Death would have won. We'd be enslaved to sin and bound to death. The resurrection not only validates Jesus as the divine son of God who defeats sin and death and secures his salvation, it says that, that, it, that this is why it matters. It's not simply that it identifies him, but it secures our salvation. So wrapping up, what does it mean to depend on the resurrection? When we depend on the resurrection, believers will have three things, genuine hope, endurance, and confidence. This is how it actually impacts and changes your day-to-day life. The first is hope. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, in Christ, believers are not marked by death now. We're marked by life. We've been born again, and we have a genuine hope, a living hope, not a theoretical hope, not hope for hope's sake, but hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it's secure because of the resurrection of Jesus. Through Christ, as adopted sons and daughters of God, we are entitled to the same inheritance of Jesus Christ. That means we'll have bodies that never decay or die. Fellowship with God the Father, life everlasting, where, listen to me, every chapter is better than the last, filled with ever-increasing joy. When we depend on the resurrection, Christians have genuine hope. But they also have endurance. Look at what Romans 8, 16 and 17 says. The Spirit himself bears with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Christians will often ask, I hear this all the time, if the resurrection defeated sin and death, why do I still experience suffering now? See, one of the implications of future glory is that presently we suffer. See, the power of the resurrection is something we're looking forward to. Now, it has implications in the present, but we have not been resurrected yet. Jesus has not come back to do the final job. The the glory of our resurrection comes after the suffering of the cross. That's, That's the road that Jesus walked, and it's the same road that we walk. We should expect to share in his sufferings on the road to sharing in his glory. The road to glory and resurrection for Jesus was paved by his suffering, and so we too will go through it. But just like Christ, we can endure. When you have that kind of anchoring hope, you know what you have to look forward to, and that gives you the motivation to endure. When we depend on the resurrection, Christians can genuinely endure. And last thing, confidence. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58. Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This passage is at the end of this glorious um, exposition on resurrection. And he finishes out by saying, we have a new outlook and attitude towards death and dying. We can call death what it is. It's unnatural. It's an enemy. But because of the resurrection, it's a neutered enemy. It's a powerless enemy. It's been dealt a decisive and crippling blow. That's why Paul can say, be steadfast, be immovable. Give yourself to the work of the Lord, knowing that it will not be in vain. You can, friends, in Christ, you can live confidently, knowing that the greatest threat to your life has been conquered in Christ. Death is no longer a formidable enemy against you. And when we depend on the resurrection, Christians can live with confidence. The death and resurrection of Christ is not something we can simply disregard and discredit because it sounds too good to be true. Something happened 2,000 years ago that changed history. And friends, if you believe in Christ, it can change your history and your trajectory too. What we've been trying to say this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus is simply too good not to be true. It can stand up to your doubts. It has significance and importance for your life today. You can't simply strip Christianity of the resurrection and try to hold on to its values and its morals because it's anchored to the resurrection. It simply doesn't work that way. But when you put your faith and dependence in the resurrection, you will have hope and endurance and confidence. May God give us faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, and who was raised for us that we might have a life of meaning, significance, and purpose.